The opioid crisis that killed so many in Northeast Ohio is now becoming a cash windfall for Cuyahoga County, which is where we'll start our conversation on the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the journalists of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm here with co-host Laura Johnston. What's up, Laura? Happy to be here. I love the piece you did on the giant whale painting along the shoreway. You asked the guy who painted it the question that seems like it always comes up. Why whales? Lake Erie is a freshwater lake. There be no whales here. Yes, this is the question everyone always asks. Why isn't it giant walleye on the the wall? And uh, the painter, who just goes by the name Wyland, has actually painted these in a 100 places um, around the world. And the idea is that all water leads to the ocean and he wants us to all feel connected to the life source of the planet so he came back to touch up that wall and they'll rededicate it this week it's a cool painting so it's it was good to get some background I mean, we've talked to him before but it's always worth asking why whales why not why not a freshwater fish anyway we got a lot on our plates today including a conversation with the newest member of our browns reporter team ellis williams but before we get to that discussion let's go over the top news of the past week Cleveland.com's Eric Heisig reported this week that Johnson & Johnson had reached a deal worth more than $20 million to settle its portion of opioid lawsuits with Cuyahoga and Summit counties. The trial is set to begin later this month in a federal courtroom in Cleveland. The company says it will pay $10 million to both counties and another $5 million to cover their legal expenses. The rest will go to nonprofits that deal with addiction. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose has canceled more than 182,000 voter registrations in the most recent purge of inactive voters from Ohio's rolls. That's far short of the 230,000-plus voters who, in June, got a last-chance notice from the state informing them they were close to having their registrations canceled. LaRose published the bigger list, resulting in many people being identified who should not be on the purge lists. South Euclid City Council has posted records showing that the suburb's municipal court judge attended more than 20 out-of-town judicial conferences since 2014, including trips over the past 13 months to Paris, Panama, and Hawaii. The council and the judge have been feuding for years, with the judge seeking much bigger budgets than the council wants to give. A spokesman for the judge defended the travel, but council believes the list of spending will give needed perspective to taxpaying voters. The people who run the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority, the Board of Trustees, might change their bylaws to deal with some of the abuses of the system in recent years. First among the proposed changes, a term limit on the board president. The most recent former president served 24 years before leaving in disgrace and being convicted of stealing from the RTA. The trustees might also end their annual pay, 6000 for the board chairman and a little bit less for the rest of them. That makes a lot of sense as many of them have jobs in government and participate on the board as part of their already paid for job responsibilities. A company that lists a former Cleveland City Councilman as one of two partners owes more than $100,000 in delinquent property taxes and unpaid utility bills. John E. Barnes Sr. served on city council from 1972 to 1989. He and his wife are listed as the only partners of Ohio Erie Properties, which owns at least nine properties in Cuyahoga County. One of those is where four decomposed bodies were discovered last month after they were shot to death. Property taxes for the 2018 tax year should have been paid by this past July, yet the nine Ohio Erie parcels still had unpaid balances as of Tuesday, and some also owed water and sewer charges. What did Barnes have to say when Cleveland.com reached out? Not much. He called it a private matter. All right. So I, uh, I'm still fascinated by this opioid story and the, money, the amount of money that's coming in the Cuyahoga County. You ready to bring in Chris Wernowski to, to chat with him about where that money's going to go? I'm sure he will have something to say about it. All right, I'll, let's go get him. We're happy to welcome back to the podcast our Crime and Courts editor, Chris Wernowski. Good morning. So we had news this week of another settlement in the Cuyahoga and Summit counties involving the opioid epidemic. Uh, this one was with Johnson & Johnson, and it's worth $20 million. That brings the total so far to more than $65 million just for those two counties. And the question I have, Chris, is 
did those two counties have costs anywhere near that much? I mean, I get it. I get it. They, they had to do lots more autopsies. They had to put a whole bunch of kids into foster care because their parents were addicted or dying. Uh, they had to pay for all the law enforcement involved. But, man, $65 million pays for a lot of autopsies and a lot of foster care. Well, keep in mind, we're probably not done paying for autopsies and foster care. You know, I mean, part of part of what this stuff is, th- this money is meant to do is to continue to pay for the adverse effects of, of opioid addiction. You know, I mean, there are still hundreds and thousands of people in recovery. There are still people who struggle day to day. There are hospitals that are still eating the, the cost of, of all of this. There's police departments that are having to buy Narcan and untold amounts, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, this is like perpetual care at a cemetery. You know, you pay, you pay so somebody could come and cut, cut the grass in perpetuity. And this is, this is, you know, this is what these companies are paying for is, 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 you know, not only what happened, but what is to come. And Cuyahoga County and Summit County are just two of the counties that have sued. Their trials are scheduled to go first kind of as a test, but a lot of others sued too, right? And when all of these suits were compiled before Judge Dan Polster in Cleveland, he pretty quickly said he wanted settlements, and he wanted settlements to go to the opioid crisis. Is there anything in this settlement that requires that? Not really. I mean, it doesn't even require the the company to admit that they did anything wrong. You know, it's it's... It's, you know, to give you some sense of what happened to Johnson and Johnson, Johnson and Johnson lost a jury trial in Oklahoma that cost them way five hundred and seventy two million dollars. So, you know, there's a lot being said about the Cuyahoga County and the Summit County trials being the bellwether of of all of these hundreds of other lawsuits that have been filed and consolidated here in Cleveland. Mm But I think the real bellwether is Oklahoma, where you've seen a very sizable judgment against a very big company and now that company is looking at dozens of other other individual lawsuits you know in in many many parts of this country and and those are going to start to add up you think 20 million dollars is a lot of money well it's almost six six hundred million dollars is way more so but the 20 million dollars does include five million dollars going to like programs right to help correct okay yeah, the, the county council and the executive are working on a, an opioid plan. I think they're going to they're going to reveal it very soon. Mm-hmm. But but if you get back to my original question about the the actual costs the county is born, I mean, they're sixty five million. They're probably going to get over a hundred million a year ago. They were talking about a social services tax increase to pay these costs. I would think that conversation would go away now because a hundred million dollars is a lot of money. Is the true cost of this epidemic not really the autopsies and the Narcan and the and the foster care? Is it is the cost of this really the addiction treatment? And if if you take that hundred million and you use it to give people the inpatient treatment they need, then is that anywhere near enough to deal with this epidemic in Cuyahoga County? It's weird in this state because our addiction recovery system is so unregulated. So, you know, what I think a lot of people, you know, when you talk to people who work in this industry, I think I think one of the biggest concerns is that this money, you're going to start seeing a lot of, of people who weren't in the recovery business quickly going into the recovery business to, because all of this money is going to be available in some way. There's going to be grants. There's going to be contracts. And I think, you know, I think what we overlook here when we look at the cost of uh, that is borne by the counties and the governments and the police department is just the untold human toll that that it takes place here and that that you know what gets lost in the conversation is you know how are we going to help these people who are still addicted who still you know need help who's you know whose children are without parents well and and, and you handled our human toll series a few years back we were really we we looked at were the people who the survivors of those who had died Mm -hmm. and what it had done and we talked to some people that were in recovery that i think ended up falling out of recovery uh, that's where it gets very expensive, right? Right. And and I think what, you know, a smart county would do is take this money and fix the, the bureaucratic problems that really exist within the, the recovery system. You know, it's, you know, you have a lot of tired old ideas of, of people who, you know, want to do things like we're fighting a drug problem in the 1980s through, you know, telling kids drugs are naughty. And, and, and w- w- what, 
what we're really not doing is is looking at this from the public health angle that it really needs to be looked at. I, I, I honestly think that there are major structural changes to how we approach addiction that need to take place in this county before anything will get better. Did, did you, though, expect three, four years ago when we were in the, in the height of this crisis that, that eventually we would be talking about amounts like this coming to the county to, <laughs> to start dealing with this problem? I will never underestimate the power of attorneys to find money <laughs> uh, from, from companies and, and take the lion's share of it from the people who actually deserve it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, look, I covered, I covered tobacco litigation down in Florida and and you know you had to see this coming it's 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 interesting in that you know we've we've allowed governments and police departments and all these these but you know personal liability you know holding doctors accountable holding yeah. from from an individual perspective none of that exists and and so you know we're still at a place where the institutions are sort of being taken care of, but the people who are affected by this, the people who've died, their families, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their aunts and uncles, what are they, what are they going to see for their loss? Right. And, and I think when we, when we talk about these massive amounts of money, talk about these tug of wars between Dave Yost and Armin Budish and the counties and all of this that's, that's happening now over who's going to control all of his money, what gets lost, I think, in the conversation most of the time, almost 100% of the time, is the fact that human people died and their stories are being forgotten. So we had other news out of the case this week. Um, very newsy case. Big Pharma doesn't really like Judge Dan Polster, and the companies are doubling down on their drive to kick him off the cases. So they've tried twice now, right? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean... E- it, if, if you're a court watcher, you know that as trials get closer, attorneys start to do all of these sort of motions and all of this wrangling and stuff to try to, you know, what they're looking for is tr- is stuff that they can kind of preserve as, as stuff that they can raise at appeal. Um, you know, this is interesting because it, it do, I mean, you do have a situation here where a a judge said from the onset i want this to settle mm-hmm. and and the, and the question that it raises is you know does is that prejudice i if 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 you know anything about civil law most cases don't go to court right. but but let me but but let me let me push back there i mean okay. if it so so i'm the drug companies and i've been sued right and i feel like i am i am in the right mm-hmm. that that i don't owe anything if i have a judge that's immediately saying you should settle. He the, he seems to be saying then I have a liability, and if I don't agree with that, I could see the argument being made that there's a bias here. He's automatically presupposing I owe some money on this, and if I don't agree with that, then I could argue he's got a bias, right? Yeah, I mean you can. I mean you can argue anything <laughs> in court. I mean, yeah, if you file the paperwork and pay the the fee, you can file anything. But I, you know, I think in a situation like this. It, it, what the companies are trying to take advantage of is the the fact that that having to break all of this up and 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 to deal with each one of these cases individually is something that would would cripple the court system. Mm-hmm. You know, we when I covered the tobacco stuff in Florida, one of the biggest problems that came out of that was that they did something very similar to this, but but then the state supreme court said, no, you got to try each one of these cases individually, and there were hundreds of thousands of cases, and so. All of the local courts were like, ah, this is going to be right. a logjam for our civil system. And, and so it's, this is a situation that I think is, is it doesn't favor the drug companies. No, but, and, and, but, and look, Polster points out they sat on this argument from the moment he started urging the settlement more than a year ago to now, like you pointed out, at the last minute, and then they come in with this. And he's saying this seems like a last-minute tactic on the eve of trial to mess with the trial. Certainly the plaintiffs in the case see it the same way. So he he doesn't just say, I'm not biased and you can't, no reasonable person can find it. He's also questioning their tactics as being somewhat sleazy. Yeah, I th- I think I think in in what this multi district litigation I think what what they'll settle on after these trials is you know an established set of facts that that 
will af- apply to basically all of the cases that come after it. And, and, you know, you're going to, you know, what, what you're seeing now, and it's important to point out that it's, this is not Purdue Pharma and stuff. This is like retailers, like Walgreens yeah. and, and stuff like that, that are making this claim. So, you know, it, it, regardless of what they say, there's still umpteen other lawsuits that are people who haven't raised this issue, the defendants who haven't raised this issue. So it's, it's a mess, and it'll 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 play out. But I guess we'll know in a couple of days or a couple of weeks because I they I think the appeals court has to make this decision before the trial takes place, and that's coming up very soon. Well, they could also take it to Supreme Court. All right, in other court news, we have Flava Puffs, one of the more unusual <laughs> scam cases to come down the line in a long while, involves what sounds like a pyramid scheme involving snack food, specifically cheese puffs. <laughs> Do tell. Well, uh, we we. Caught wind of this story last year, and and we started to write about it. And for whatever reason, we didn't write about it at the time. And then um, the good thing was, is we had this great story ready to publish as soon as it uh, as soon as his verdict came out. But we had some some gentlemen here who who I mean, this guy this guy had such a weird sort of glitz and glamour life. He was married to one of the Real Housewives and. You know, had Bentleys and and fancy cars, and now he and, and by the time he got in legal trouble, he was, you know, driving a car that his aunt had to co-sign to get him a loan on, and and he he basically misled a lot of people into investing a lot of money, millions into, of millions dollars. of dollars into a snack food company, and it just like, I mean, I don't know how. I mean, again, I I just don't know how people fall for these things. It it's beyond me. But it was one of those too good to be true things. I I don't know why anybody would think that you would be able to get a fifteen percent return on an investment. Well, in a well, generic it was a bunch of like puffs. retired couples who put their life savings in it, right? Who probably weren't the most educated on investment strategies. Maybe they just got invited to these restaurants and got a free meal and said, "Hey, invest in snack puffs." I, I want to. Did they eat the snack puffs? Like, did they try <laughs> them? Like, before? These are amazing. We have to invest in them. <laughs> the, 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 the sad thing was that the prosecutors looked and they said, "This looks like your typical pyramid scheme, where the money you're getting from the later investors pays the early investors, and then all of a sudden the company just shuts down." I was stunned that they're not getting prison time and they only have to pay restitution of $200,000. They, they, they both were convicted, these two guys, of 10 felony counts of securities fraud. And we've seen previous people in pyramid schemes, usually in federal court, that go away for a long time. But they're going to be on the street and they only have to pay back $200,000. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, look. Every every judge has a different way of approaching how things like this shake out, and the I think the judge's logic in this case is I would rather have them out working and paying restitution to their victims. Now, whether they'll ever be able to make their victims whole is is it remains to be seen. I mean, they they took a lot of money from people, and it, I want to see what they do for a job that's not bilking people. Well, hopefully, like, delivering the real cheesy job? puffs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, it's you know I I've seen this go both ways where either a judge will throw the book at somebody and then the victims will raise the issue of well if they're sitting in jail for five years what you know when am I going to get my money and 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 so it's. You know, it's it's a situation. It's a situation where you're gonna the judge is gonna probably be criticized whatever they do. So right. we, we we can't not go here. An element of the story was that his wife, a professional wrestler and actress, hosted something called the Lingerie Bowl, which is somehow connected to the Super Bowl. What is the Lingerie Bowl? <laughs> I don't know. I've never watched it. Yeah, I mean, to look at me, you would think like, oh, here's a guy who watches something called the Lingerie Bowl. But I have never. Act- <laughs> I have never actually watched Puppy Bowl instead. I've watched the Puppy Bowl. That's that's much more of my speed like the dogs are cute um i guess it's just a kind of a sleazy hustler style event where where they play football play, play football and, and, and lingerie, lingerie. I guess, you know and and it's not my cup of tea to be honest right. so good for her though <laughs> all right so let's go back to a story we've talked about on the podcast before and i'm sure we'll talk about it again the photo of the guy who was standing on mayor frank jackson's driveway with a lot of cash and a big gun we originally had the story about the existence of the photo and the guy who was in it being a felon. But now that guy, Sean Murray Jr., has been formally identified as the member of a criminal gang. What's the story here? Yeah. So, I mean, we we got word last week that that 
this guy was going to be tra- that he was charged in a in a larger sort of gang investigation um, that also does involve a relative of the of the mayor that that his the mayor's great grandson was also involved in this and you know we've talked about this before that you know there's when when we got the photo and we did the story about the guy it you know we thought well this is you know this is troubling and you know and we we've had a lot of discussion and a lot has been written about what what the mayor tries to do for his community and and the people that live in his neighborhood and and really kind of quietly you know this is not i i don't think he does these things to try to win political points or anything like that i in fact i think it it's i think it's stuff that would probably make him politically unpopular if, if if people knew he was opening his house to people who were doing this kind of stuff so then it's it's you know now it comes to the question of you know he has one grandson who is is a suspect in a murder case you have another grandson who is is involved in some gang activity and so larger questions are sort of starting to come up about where these lines are you know he he has drawn a distinct line saying that my family is off limits that you know i don't have any that he has doesn't really have a responsibility to to address this stuff but you know i but think let's get back to the guy right I mean, we have the the, the great grandson is charged in juvenile court with being a member of a gang mm-hmm. shot done shootings done armed robberies done burglaries beat people up this guy who was on the mayor's driveway with the gun and the money is listed in the juvenile court case as a co-defendant, mm-hmm. but he's an adult, mm-hmm. yet he's not charged in adult court. Are we presuming those charges will be coming since he's listed as a co-defendant? Yeah, I, my guess is that it will be. I, I, you know, I'm not sure what's taking prosecutors so long. I mean, it's you know, there must be some sort of evidence that they're waiting for to to pull the trigger. All right, on so, that, t- so, so, t- so take this by extension then. Mm-hmm. So you've got a criminal gang mm-hmm. that that. Adam Parisa's sources said was meeting at Mayor Jackson's house. Are, do we have a day coming where criminal investigators will serve a search warrant on the mayor's home for evidence of criminal gang activity? I mean, I don't want to speculate, but you know, it's that's it's, what we're it, here to do, Chris. <laughs> it's, no, I mean, look, I, it, it's it, there are no shortage of weird things that have happened in this this case. You know, you know from the allowing his older grandson to just come in and talk to police at his leisure and, and things like that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't normal about this and, and that, 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 that in the, if, if you, you take in a whole into account other criminal investigations that we cover, you know, it's nothing like anything else. Yeah. And, or and anything so, in America. I mean, this is very, like, very Cleveland. So thing. it's difficult to say, are they going to yeah. search the mayor's house? I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, for his sake, I hope not. But I'm sure we'll be talking about it again soon. <laughs> yeah, correct. All right. Thanks for coming by, Chris. Always good to hear your take on puppies and lingerie. All right. Anytime. In a moment, we'll talk about a very public spat in South Euclid between the city council and the municipal court judge. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Pete Krause, and belated happy birthday. You're 40, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got it. Pete, you had my favorite story of the week, the Battle of South Euclid. The city council took the bold step of publishing the travel records of the municipal court judge showing trips to Paris, Panama, and Hawaii. It's all part of a battle for the hearts and minds of the residents. The judge wants a bigger budget. The council says she wastes money. What is going on in South Euclid? Well, you summed it up pretty well. Uh, there's a battle between the judge and the city council over how much money the court should have to operate. Uh, they're off by a couple hundred thousand dollars. And um, uh, the judge has sued the city council for that money and also made some claims about some malfeasance, which the city denies. And in response, the city decided to publish the court, the travel records of the judge to show what they feel is uh, a wasteful use of public money. That's a big deal to, for the council to do that. That in, in government circles, that's a very aggressive step. Well, uh, the council and the judge haven't been getting along for years. Ever, pretty much ever since she took office, there's been uh, uh, bad uh, feelings between uh, city leaders and the judge over how much uh, she, you know how much money she should be spending uh, and who's in charge of, uh, of the court dollars. So. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me. I think they, they did this in, in response to her suing. 
uh, because they want the people to know that the council wants people to know that they believe they are being responsible with court dollars and they're not denying a judge uh, the, the necessary funds. It does seem like some of this travel is really over the top. I know the spokesman defended it. He said, you know, she's teaching a lot of classes at these conferences. But you talked to someone with an objective view who pretty much threw up a yellow flag. Well, yeah, here, here's the deal. Okay, she's she's gone to over 20. Uh, she's made over 20 trips to, to judicial conferences over the past five years. And just in the past 13 months alone, she went to um, Hawaii, uh, Paris. Uh, and that's Panama. not the first time she's France, gone to Hawaii. France, for and, work. Uh, France Miami, and, and Panama. And uh, um, uh, Panama, Central America, Panama. And, um, As opposed to what? Panama, yeah. Ohio? Well, no. The, 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 uh, the conference was in Panama City, and the jumping off oh. point was Miami. So did right. she go to Panama City, Florida, or Panama City, I Panama? See. She I went see. to Panama City, Panama, just for, for, a, for a day. She was two nights stay at the hotel that's there, not but, a day that's two nights well that's it's two nights but but uh yeah but so and and now she did pay when she went to france she paid her own airfare she paid her own lodging she spent a total of four almost four thousand dollars and but she took her magistrate along and i think that was one of the things that um you mentioned this this watchdog who took exception with some of this travel Catherine terser with uh, common cause ohio you know she basically said that a municipal court judge uh not to mention the magistrate uh, should not be going overseas for uh, this kind of uh, okay, continuing education. You, and you got to say what the title of that one was because it really didn't seem like it fit with us. It was about the Renaissance. Uh, well, it's it, it's called it was called Judicial Renaissance, and what it was is uh, it says it says here in the description during this program judges will engage with experts from the arts humanities and science in order to better understand the context of the legal system and their place within it judges will rediscover the foundations of justice as embodied within the scope of lasting human achievements okay all right now in municipal court you're dealing with DUIs and really petty crimes. Not sure that a trip- no, it doesn't, and I don't think anybody, any reasonable person, would say that this was an acceptable trip. Um, you know, again, she justifies it, by, uh, or at least her attorney justifies it by saying she paid her airfare, her lodging, and she got a discount on some of her tuition. What was really uh, objectionable to Catherine uh, Tursa, though, is why did the magistrate Dean Valori have to go along? Right. Look, there's a bigger issue here. You've invested a lot of time in recent years looking at how municipal courts work. This story reemphasized that there really is no oversight on these courts. You and I were talking about this the other day. I guess the system is designed where voters are the oversight, but how many voters actually know what goes on in their municipal courts? The only tie do they have to it is if they get a ticket or if they're on jury duty. So what have you what have you seen? You've talked to so many experts in this sphere what is the deal with municipal courts in Ohio? Well, municipal courts largely go uh, un- unsupervised. Um, they uh, are funded by the, the cities where they are located, and some of, some of these courts serve uh, uh, several cities, so it, it could be a number of cities that help contribute to the budget of the municipal court. But they have very little say in how the court spends their money. They They can't uh, hold back money from the court unless it, they believe it to be unreasonable, and, and which is what South Euclid has done, and, and then a court case may ensue. Um, really, the only oversight is from the Ohio Supreme Court, and the best I can tell, the, the Ohio Supreme Court you know, doesn't really pay that much attention to municipal courts in this state. All right, so what's next in South Euclid? This was the council taking a very hard shot at the judge, but she's safe in her seat for what, the next three years? Yeah, she was reelected, I believe it was last year, so she's got another, I think it's a six-year term, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I am told that she is going to be running for uh, the appeals court next year, uh, which makes me wonder if the South Euclid officials are going to support that uh, just to get her out of there yeah. <laughs> but uh but i you know that i haven't talked to her uh, 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 about that um uh, but there like i mentioned there are two court cases pending one with the ohio supreme court one in common police court here in cuyahoga county and um th- those will probably play out and, and then more information could come out there's there's gonna there may be discovery there could be other information uh you know about the a- actions of the judge and the city council it could get really interesting 
Well, speaking of the cost of government, you had a story this week about the Greater Cleveland Partnership saying it's going to start taking a harder look at local tax increases. In recent years, the group, which serves as the region's Chamber of Commerce, has pretty much endorsed every tax tax increase it has reviewed. So what's going to change? Well, that, that that's uh, what's going to change, according to the Greater Cleveland Partnership, is they're going to take a much more... Um, uh, they're going to scrutinize tax increases more closely, and they're going to look at them in the context of all other tax increases that they think they may be asked to weigh in on. And over the, the next... burden that we're already paying, right? To the tax burden, right? I mean, they've come out and said that that Cuyahoga County residents are paying more in taxes than they should in comparison with peer cities. So they believe that they need to take a harder line on not necessarily renewals. I mean, the Health and Human Services. Uh, uh, levy is not going to be uh, is going to be renewed, but whether there's an increase or not, or whether there's an increase to the Cleveland uh, public schools levy, those are the those are the ones that are going to need uh, greater justification in the minds of the Greater Cleveland Partnership. And what they want to see is they want to see more creativity in what they're going to be using that that extra money for. They want to see if if there's a greater good beyond just filling a deficit. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that. That there's there, that that it's really justified before they say tell tell the taxpayers uh, we want to load you up a little bit more. You know, this seems a little bit bent to me though because their their overriding theme it comes from a study they did earlier this year that shows taxes are not just going up but over the last ten years they're going up very rapidly faster than ever before. So so I get it right. We they're looking at it saying. Northeast Ohio has this huge tax burden, and we got to get it under control. What they didn't do that I think would have been much more useful is to say, this is what we've been doing for the last 40 years. If you stretch that out 20 years, here, here's what it's going to look like. And add to that that we're going to need a football stadium, a new basketball arena, a new baseball stadium, very likely, or, or the threat of losing those teams. You know, there's been talk about airport stuff. There's been talk about uh, the huge capital needs of the RTA. Put all that together in a pot and say, if we keep doing the same thing exactly as we have done it, this will be the tax burden in 20 years. We need to do a wholesale change. Instead, what they've said is, we're not going to look at taxes in a vacuum individually. We're going to make you tell us in more detail why you think you need it. And that doesn't change the trajectory of what caused them to do this to begin with. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, you know, you can somewhat chart the trajectory of of tax demands. But, you know, you mentioned the airport. Uh, in in the future, are, are, is it going to be just the city of Cleveland financing the airport, or might we have a regional airport where everybody contributes? You know, what, uh, are we going to be financing stadiums in the future, or are we going to shift to maybe uh, ownership taking more of a burden? And again, could right now, sin taxes and uh, uh, cigarette taxes and, and the sin taxes finance a lot of the arts and the sports in Cuyahoga County. Other counties don't contribute. I think the Greater Cleveland Partnership would like to see a more of a regional tax. Now, which that's going to take a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, getting people together and getting the Ohio legislature to go along. So I think what they're saying is that we need to restructure some of our tax authorities, some of our government um, uh, boundaries so that uh, when, we, when, we get, when, when groups go after tax increases, it's, it's going to be spread more evenly across the region. But this announcement does not do that. That's, that's No, the it doesn't. This announcement it, right. is a baby it, step. A baby step. But when they, when they came out with their study, they were calling for giant steps. And this baby step will not launch the conversation. Well, I, I still – well, they still – and they still want – that conversation and that com- and they know that conversation is coming in the form of Cleveland rising in the form of what the city's say, planning. Don't, and- don't they like, it seems like this could be a step toward the bigger economic development information um, kind of gathering that they're doing right now. Perfect and segue. Perfect segue. So one of the other stories you wrote this week is about uh, Cleveland connects. So the goal, um, You've written a, a lot about the other cities and what they're doing and um, how it works together with Cleveland. So the cool thing about those conversations, they're absolutely dedicated to the economic progress for all. Everyone seems to be saying that economic inclusion is key to the future. And now we're trying to answer that question. What does economic inclusion actually mean? 
There was a question in there. I wow, promise. That is a tough. So you're asking me to <laughs> determine ask, what is uh, what is that going to be? A story about Cleveland Connects, which you know we are no, a know. partner in no, with no, PNC I and IdeaStream. So you what's the point of it? Just fix all the problems. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, this is this is a huge question. It's a question that's faced you know our society for forever. Disparity, wealth disparity, job disparity, economic disparity. It's always been with us. It's more so in some areas than others. We happen to be in a region that has a great deal of disparity um, and and not so many obvious ways out of that. And I think that's what these conversations are trying to do. And in particular, Cleveland Connects, which is coming up on October 16th, they're going to have some folks on there who are going to uh, uh, try to provide some ideas on on strategies for be, becoming more inclusive. You know, what might that what might that be? Could it be trying to attract manufacturers back to the city? Could it be raising uh, a minimum wage? Could it be uh, uh, improving our education? Some of these things are, are have been ha- yeah. have been tried and it's talked about. That, though. For- it's bigger than that. Come on, look in every one of these conversations that are going on, Cleveland Rising and what the the, the Greater Cleveland Partnership is doing, and some others. Everybody is fully dedicated to economic inclusion, but when you say, "What does that mean?" People stumble all over it. I mean, that's why we pick this as a topic. We work with IdeaStream and PNC to yeah. come up with a topic that would inform this. Everybody is tripping over what does that mean? No city's done it. No city that has charted a, 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 a economic progress has narrowed the disparity between rich and poor. Cleveland is trying to do that, but there is a vacuum of of what that means. And so this Cleveland Connects Forum yeah. is meant to discuss that and try and identify it well there's going to be philosophical differences as to how you approach that right i mean some people are are going to be saying that you want wealth distribution again going back to like raising uh, you know creating a living wage uh, uh demanding or requiring um uh hiring of local uh, uh local workers you know the the supreme court just uh, turned down the fannie lewis law which was a big blow to the city of cleveland and and to you know raising uh, the economic uh, situation for a lot of minorities in this community. So, uh, and then if you look at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the people are going to say, well, we have to provide incentives for business to come in here so that they can employ people. And, uh, you know, but does that work? Has that worked? Not, not necessarily. Uh, sometimes those incentives just go to the business and they don't end up hiring people. So, th- so this is such an open ended question with so many potential answers um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what they come up with. Well, I'm sure we'll keep talking about that in the future. So good to chat again, Pete. Next up on This Week in the CLE, we'll talk with the Cleveland.com politics editor about the voter purge. Jane Cahoon is in the house. Hey, hey. So Chris talked last week about the battle over purging Ohio's voter rolls, that it's eternal, and it does seem to be. But the purge has finally happened. Secretary of State Frank LaRose said do it, and 182,000 voter registrations disappeared. Correct. After much fighting and litigation, uh, we, we did the purge, and they're gone. They're gone. They did it before the voter registration deadline, which is this Monday, October 7th. So people do still have a chance to get back on. Um, But that 182,000 is quite a bit fewer than we thought we'd see originally. Right. Originally, it was supposed to be more than 230,000 people who, you know, they got these last chance notices. But because of outreach and because Secretary of State Frank LaRose was transparent about the process people had a chance to fix their registrations and they uncovered uh registrations that should not have been purged so those were corrected our editorial board has been pretty critical of this process because it did contain so many errors and the feeling is if you're going to remove registered voters from the list you have to get it right nothing can be worse than having a legitimately registered voter show up to vote in the presidential election next year and be denied because of a mistake. The conspiracy theories will abound if that happens. Our feeling is that it's not worth cleaning up these voter rolls if you can't guarantee you're going to do it correctly. All that said, Jane, you do have to say that a voter has got to be pretty dormant to get into the position where they're getting kicked off. How many elections do you have to skip? What are the rules? The rules are it's a six-year process, and for four years, you don't vote, and then another two years, you don't vote, and you don't respond to notices. So, yes, these are people who 
are very inactive. But you could argue maybe some people just only vote in presidential elections, and they didn't vote in the last one because they didn't like either candidate. So people could get caught up in this. There were a lot of people in that classification (laughs) last time around. Right. We had some more news about the ugly and continuing skirmishes between people trying to put the nuclear bailout on the ballot and people who don't want voters to have a say on it. Attorney General Dave Yost had a clear message on this one. Yes, we had, we've already had a, one of these petition blockers charged for slapping a phone out of someone's hand. And then over the weekend, this kind of blew up on social media with people, petitioners uh, for the referendum saying they were intimidated, harassed, followed, assaulted, etc. Dave Yost, the attorney general, decided to have a news conference and say, knock it off. It's against the law to interfere with someone's right to sign a petition or intimidate or harass them. And you will be prosecuted if you do this. And he called like a news conference to do that, right? Correct. So I know that state law prohibits messing with people seeking signatures on referendum petitions, but isn't there also a constitutional issue here? This intimidation seems to impede a very basic American right. Yes, and uh, Dave Yost made it clear that he will refer these cases to federal uh, authorities if warranted. So the group that backs the bailout is is funded by, by a group that doesn't have to disclose where it gets its money. But it doesn't take a genius to know who's benefiting from this bailout. First Energy Solutions is going to get $900 million of our dollars to prop up their increasingly lame nuclear plants. <laughs> so we're going back to the editorial board. The editorial board this week called on First Energy to disavow these tactics because this is bad. This is interfering with basic American rights. Has First Energy said anything about these tactics? Well, let's put it this way. They haven't denied being behind this effort, but no, they haven't really been out front. (laughs) Okay, onward. Governor Mike DeWine has followed up now on his original thoughts on a vaping ban. He said a week or so ago that he was looking at whether he had the authority to just ban the uh, flavored e-cigarettes and the sale of them. Evidently, he does not because now he's seeking another solution. What's his next step? Right. He's determined the best way to go here is to work with the legislature and get a law passed banning the flavored vaping products. There's already a bill in the legislature introduced by Tom Hatton of Strongsville that would do just that. The the governor also has written to the FDA seeking the rule change at the national level as well. So this is about kids, right, and teenagers. There's no mixed messaging anymore. The vaping sickness has debilitated some e-cigarette users, and banning vapes is intended to prevent kids from getting addicted. Right. I think we've said before, Mike DeWine is all about kids. His agenda is very kid-focused. He was passionate about saying, hey, we can't get a whole new generation of kids hooked on nicotine. And that's what's happening with these flavored vaping products, that they're luring kids with these sweet flavors. And it's just like what happened with cigarettes. Another story coming out of Columbus shouldn't surprise anyone, given how much work has been done by elected leaders to restrict abortions in Ohio. News that we had an all-time low for the number of abortions since the state started keeping track in 1976. Correct. The abortion report shows uh, abortions in Ohio were down in 2018 by 2%. This is right in line with the national trend of declining abortions since Roe v. Wade for the last few decades. So state law does require doctors, right, to to provide details on the people getting abortions anonymously, not with names, I guess. What do we know from the 2018 breakdowns? Well, we know a lot. We know most of the abortions were surgical rather than medication. And uh, about 48% of the women were white, 44% black, Most were single, never been married, and... um, And Cuyahoga had the biggest Cuyahoga had about a third of them, yes. Why is that, do you think? Just because of the poverty we have here? I think you just would tend to see that in the urban areas, and uh, they're more accessible here than in other parts of the state. Thanks for chatting with us, Jane. My pleasure. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Our public service editor, Mark Vosberg, now joins us on the podcast. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. 
So, Mark, you've handled no end of stories about the continuing corruption investigation in some parts of our county government. But I feel like the nonsense that's been going on at the Greater Cleveland RTA has escaped a lot of notice. This week, though, the RTA's Board of Trustees announced they're considering moves that would prevent some of the issues they've had to deal with. Can you tell us what they are? Yes. Um, they are, are considering several bylaw changes, that uh, several, uh, two of them, that would address the scandal from last year. Um, as you recall, or probably recall, the uh, longtime RTA president, George Dixon, uh, resigned last year. In at, disgrace. In disgrace. Um, after they discovered that he had been receiving health care coverage under the RTA plan without paying any of the premiums. Um, they also accused him of rolling up uh, private calls on his RTA phone. He resigned. He's been you know, pleaded guilty to theft in office. So, by no coincidence, I think, the board decided last year to update their bylaws, which hadn't been updated since 1999. Um, two of them uh, would appear to directly relate to George Dixon. One, they're talking about imposing term limits on the president. Um, George had served 24 consecutive years. They're talking about a limit of three consecutive one-year terms um, and probably prohibiting anyone from running again for two years after the their three consecutive years. The other, they're talking about not providing a phone for the RTA president. But they're also talking about getting rid of their $6,000 a year stipend. And I got to say, that never made sense to me. A bunch of these trustees are on that board as part of their jobs with other governments. So you could argue they're all getting paid already, or many of them, not everybody. With any other nonprofit board, just about, you don't get paid. Actually, you end up spending money. So it always seemed a bit ridiculous to me that this board was paying its members. I, I agree. Uh, the board, uh, a lot of the board members are only there by virtue of holding other public uh, jobs. So the current president is the Westlake mayor, Dennis Clough, um, and uh, South Euclid mayor, Georgine Wheelow, is on the board. I don't know exactly what they get paid, but I'm sure it's more than a living wage. And they uh, ran... And they, well, and, right, they ran for office, uh, but also most of the board work is done on company time. So Taxpayer time. Right, taxpayer time. So, yes, I, I agree. I should say the only the president makes 6,000, uh, regular trustees make 4,800. Oh, man. So when are they going to actually make these changes? Oh, that's months away. They're going, uh, they have a consultant, and they're going to have many more meetings. Study the oh, issue. Right, study it, um, and so it's certainly months away. All right, another story you handled this week came from Cleveland City Hall reporter Bob Higgs. And after four people were found shot to death in an East Side house, we learned that a former city councilman had an ownership interest. So Bob went to see what else that former councilman owned in the city and whether, like the original house, they're in arrears. What did he find? He found a lot. Uh, the former councilman is uh, John Barnes Sr., um, and he and his wife are partners in a LLC, Ohio Erie Properties. What Bob found was that that LLC owned uh, 10 properties, including the house with the quadruple homicide, um, and uh, nine of the ten owed collectively over 100000 in delinquent taxes or unpaid utility. So, so John Barnes Sr. is not to be confused with his son. John Barnes Jr. served for many years in the uh, house, state house. Um, I believe he lost uh, his seat last year by running for state senate. Um, he's, for people today, far better known. Uh, John Barnes Sr. lost his council seat in 1989, so he's been out of the picture for some time.
Okay, well, let's skip over to county government. Courtney Astolfi wrote the story this week about another effort to drop the population at the jail to make it safe, a safer place. The aim is to get the mentally ill and drug-addicted inmates out of there? Yes, that that is the plan. Um, County Executive Armand Butish has been talking for a long time about creating a new treatment facility that would take people who are addicted to drugs or or have mental health problems and instead of um, these would be criminal suspects and they'd be held in in this much less costly treatment facility instead of jail. Um, They have, of course, a consultant uh, recommending now how that might work. The bigger picture is where all the money would come from um, the Metro Health uh, trustees have committed a million dollars, but it will certainly cost more than that. All right. So one more story handled. The Cuyahoga Land Bank is going to keep demolishing vacant houses through next year. The Land Bank has been taking down houses left and right, but the work was going to end this year, even though the Land Bank had not spent all the money that was set aside. So what's changed? Uh, Well, what's changed is that they will have one more year to continue demolishing houses. And that took Uh, a vote of the... Right. That was a a vote of the County Board of Control to extend their contract for a year. Um, It would not provide any more money. They will use what money is left from a 2014 allocation. It was Uh, like 50 million bucks. Right, right? 50 million. I I don't know how much is left, but some. And there's certainly many more houses to demolish. Yeah, there were people in the suburbs that that I know were worried that this was going to close down in three months because there still are a bunch of houses out there, and if the money was there, they wanted it spent. Yes, but... Eventually, they will pivot. They've already started to pivot toward renovation. So, All right, Mark, thanks for stepping in for Courtney. I'm sure she's enjoying her vacation. I'm sure she is. You're with, listening to This Week in the CLE. No topic that we cover in Cleveland.com is more popular than the Cleveland Browns, and we've just added a new reporter to the Browns team, Ellis Williams. Ellis, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Let's get this out of the way first. You had an interesting path to Cleveland. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, so um, I was at the Post Star uh, Daily Newspaper in upstate New York for about two years. Um, Around April, uh, the Oklahoman started contacting me. Uh, I felt like that would be my next move. Um, So I left the Post Star the end of May, uh, hoping to spend about a month home with family back in Minnesota. Um, anticipating a job offer around July. Uh, that did happen. On July 5th, I accepted the job, um, only to find out around August 1st that they were resending my offer, um, putting me in a bit of a free fall, if you will. But uh, as you said, things worked out. I'm sitting here with you two, and I couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, we write about that situation on a, on Pointer. That they wrote a story about it, and we reached out to you. So I know that was painful, but I, I have to say I'm glad it happened because it brought you here. <laughs> as have I. When you and I first talked, when you came in for your first visit, I thought you were on fire with your analysis of football. I mean, it was one of those interviews I did that I really didn't want it to end. And But it, it was because you've actually played. You played in college, and you bring that perspective. What was your background as a player? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, played my whole life. Uh, went to UW-Eau Claire Division three school in Wisconsin. Uh, played wide receiver there all four years. Um we weren't the best team, especially my junior and senior year. Um, I didn't see the field really till my junior year special teams. Uh, then senior year, all special teams enrolled in at receiver. I think an advantage to being a second stringer, you got to be the smartest person on the field. You know, you're not out there because necessarily your athletic traits. So you have to know the game, watch more tape than anyone, and be so sound in those situations. You know, uh, you see guys like uh, Steve Kerr. Uh, Doug Peterson, even uh, Sean McVay, as guys who um, know the game so well because they watch so much of it rather than being the people on the field necessarily. So that background, I think, really helped me transition into knowing the game of football and being able to talk about it. Right. So unlike me, who if I'm watching a game, your typical fan, my eyes are on the ball and whoever has the ball, you're watching for other stuff. So what are you looking for 
as you watch? Are you are you looking where the ball is going, or just how do you analyze a play having that player's background? Yeah. So um, in the broadcast, um, the first thing I like to do is look at you know if we're talking about the offense here, I actually look at the defense. I see where the safeties are. I see then if it's one or two high. Um, and then see what the cornerbacks are doing. The, you know, the guys defending people like Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry, if they're facing those receivers head on, or if their heads are in at the quarterback, tipping either man or zone defense. That's really where all these plays start is pre-snap stuff. And, you know, it actually bugs me when I'm watching a broadcast because then the ball snapped and the camera stays on the football. And meanwhile, everything I care about is running <laughs> off screen in the secondary. And I'm sitting at home like I can't see what's going on and I can't completely explain what necessarily happened, why there was a 15 yard catch or a touchdown if it's a pass because I couldn't see it yet so um, I get annoyed sometimes sitting watching the broadcast but when you see it live like that you can see the full screen um, there's there's so much going on and that's where my mind goes rather than just watching the football you know so what enough about technical stuff tell us what you think about the Browns Look, this team, it feels like the real deal. I know it felt like a, a free fall, if you will, um, after the home opener and then the Sunday night game. Um, but it's incredible what one win can do to a narrative, right? They go to Baltimore on the road, pick up a huge division win, um, and now have a, the sole possession of first place for the first time since 2014, I believe. So, look, I think this team's legit. Um, the roster talent speaks for itself, and I think that it just took the first quarter to work out some kinks in the offense uh really the underrated part of this unit is the defense they're the real deal they've been building this thing for a few years now um and with those two parts i think uh, the browns have a real shot to make a run here the week before the ravens game you wrote a piece that pretty much predicted the browns offense would tear apart the ravens defensive backfield and then that pretty much happened how did you know what went into your analysis of that? Yeah, you know, Jarvis Landry with 100 yards receiving in the first half wasn't a huge surprise to me. The beauty about football is that the tape doesn't lie. Um, now with the access to this technology, we're watching the same stuff these coaches are watching in their film rooms. It's not a big secret anymore. At the end of the day, football is man coverage, zone coverage, and how do our athletes compare with your athletes? Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, two of the best athletes in the NFL, uh, the Baltimore Ravens, First, didn't grade out well in the secondary, battling injuries, uh, and then just watching what other pass-happy teams did to them, like the Arizona Cardinals. I anticipated that Cleveland would try and attack them in the same way, and as you alluded to, Jarvis Landry um, had a great first half, and it, it wasn't that surprising to me, and I, I think that's a way that a lot of teams are going to attack Baltimore this year. Okay, so I am not a rabid Browns fan, but as a Clevelander, I definitely want them to win. Um, and my kid likes football. So based on what you've seen so far, what do you recommend I pay attention to during a game so that maybe I can impress him with my knowledge? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Um, I I want to go back to what I said earlier about uh, man coverage versus zone coverage. That's okay. really the root of the passing game, if you will. And we all love seeing the football get passed around, right? So I challenge you next time when you're watching a game, the person guarding Odell Beckham say, um, if his eyes are square in, looking at Odell Beckham's shoulders square, that likely means eight, nine times out of ten, they're running man defense. And if Odell Beckham has man coverage, it's a good idea to throw him the ball. He's going to beat the guy across from him usually. If the guy guarding Odell Beckham is, you know, five, ten yards off him and his shoulders are more inwards towards the quarterback, it's probably zone coverage. And then you got to find a hole in the defense rather than just throwing it deep. So I think that's a s simple way to, you know, it is a complex game. Don't get me wrong. But say, I'm going to have to roll this back and like listen sure, to it several sure. times. <laughs> but it's just a quick tip off, whether it's man coverage or zone coverage. I think we can start there and that builds a good foundation for uh, understanding this game a little more. Well, All thank right. you. Yeah, no, no problem. I'm looking for the lots more of your perspective, Ellison. I think you're going to bring some pop to our Orange and Brown podcast. Listeners can get exclusive content from Ellis, Mary Kay Cabin, and the rest of the Browns team by subscribing to our Football Insider at projecttext.com slash Football. So good to have you. Happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Okay, Laura, it's just you and me again. And in addition to your piece on the big whale painting, you had some news this week that bodes well for people who love the Cuyahoga River. Yes, definitely. So there's going to be an official water trail in the Cuyahoga. Actually runs the entire 100-mile length of the river. And we'll be dedicating it as one of Ohio's 13 water trails, which means there'll be 24 specific access points to get on the river. And there'll be signage and brochures and, and kind of make it more officially a spot to go. Let me ask you this, though, because when... When they create these trails in the Florida mangroves and things, there's there's a trail because you, you don't have to stay on that channel necessarily. There are other places you can go. But when you're on the river, 
The river's the trail. <laughs> Do you really need the market as a trail? There's only one way you can go, right? No, that's true. Um, there are a lot of different parts of the river. Like you have the industrial section in Cleveland. You have some really severe rapids in Cuyahoga Falls. Um, you still have a dam that you need to worry about. And you have some really placid areas. Uh, the idea is to mark those better so that people know what they're getting into. Um but yeah, there, there, there's idea of a water trail on the lake. Now that's a much bigger body of water and a trail might help people get from one spot to the other. But the idea is really to bring more tourism and just show people what the Cuyahoga has to offer. Yeah, and it I, also celebrates the 50 year um, resurgence of the river. I just, when I think of a trail, I think of something that's marked to keep me going in the right direction. And I really cannot go in the wrong direction on the river. You can paddle backwards, I guess. You can try to go against the current. (laughs) All right. Well, something to look forward in the warmer weather, not in October. Although we did set a record for the hottest temperature ever recorded in October this week with 93 degrees. Are you going out on the water this weekend? You know, it's hockey season in my house, so I just get to put on more layers and go stand in a cold rink. All right. Well, whatever you end up doing, have a good weekend. You too. That's it for this episode. This Week in the CLE is published every Thursday wherever you get your podcast. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. We thank everyone who participated in the discussion, and we thank you for listening. Send me a note with what you think of the conversation at cquinn at cleveland.com, and if you get a moment, leave a review. We'll be back next week.